pod here. When we talk about media barons, the name Murdoch, the name Maxwell, the name Conrad Black, and the name Fairfax comes to mind. In an Australian and a Southeast Asia context, the name Fairfax is renowned for being a very successful multi-generational family with newspapers, magazines, radio stations, TV stations, and these days, multimedia platforms. I'm joined on this podcast today by Warwick Fairfax, who at the age of 26 launched a multi-billion dollar takeover of the publicly traded version of the business to make it private. At the age of 30, the company collapsed into receivership. We talk about family duty, loyalty, and the drivers to ancestral legacy that drove that for him. We talk about public humiliation. Every leader makes mistakes. Senior leaders make mistakes that have a big ripple effect across the organization. But in his case, it was a very public mistake. And how he managed to survive that is the source of our conversation today. We talk about what he calls a crucible moment, recognizing what has happened, but also building a pathway to come out of that to rebuild self-belief, self-efficacy, and confidence. We talk about life of significance and how you can define a life of significance if you understand who you truly are and if the place that you're working in suits you or actually gets in the way. And finally, we distinguish between having led an epic failure as a leader or making a mistakes at an epic level as a leader does not mean you, the human being, are an epic failure. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. I had to learn, like, yeah, I made some mistakes, naive assumptions and, you know, all that. But I also had to learn that, you know, I'm not Rupert Murdoch, Kerry Packer, James Packer. I was taking on a job that I was not designed for. Sometimes we most want to do what we're worst at. And so what I try to do now is different. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Warwick, to our leadership diet all the way from Maryland, USA. Great to see you. Thanks, Pod. Uh, very much looking forward to it. A mutual colleague of ours, Sonia Firth, put me onto your podcast, Beyond the Crucible, uh, oh, a number of months ago now, which I've really enjoyed listening to. So uh, it's good to have you on our own podcast to hear your story. In that process of listening to and reading some of your interviews, one of your comments really struck me a while ago. You said the, the toughest part of your own crucible was not the number of zeros in the price tag of the loss, but the emotional devastation of letting down parents, ancestors, and indeed your God. That is a profound statement, and it really struck me when I read it. So I'd like to come back to that in a few minutes to hear more about that. But let's start at the beginning. The name Fairfax is absolutely renowned in Australia, but maybe not so much beyond it. And I'd love to know more about what was it like for you growing up in such a unique heritage. You know, your, your grandfather and your father were both knighted. Lady Mary Fairfax, your mom is renowned or was a renowned philanthropist. So what was it like growing up in that family? You know, it's, it's funny. I know this might seem like a weird analogy. It did feel a bit in some small way or strange way, a bit like the royal family in that, you know, if you said to Prince William, for instance, so you ever thought about not going to the family business? I mean, you know, his dad, Prince Charles and his, grandmother, Queen Elizabeth would, you know, have a heart attack. It'd be like, 
you know, it's your duty. What do you mean? You know, it's not a choice. You're serving your nation. You know, yes, there are costs and maybe there are benefits, but in some strange way, it felt a bit like that. Yeah, some would know the family business was founded in 1841 by my great great grandfather John Fairfax came out to England with you know pretty much nothing and founded this great newspaper and yeah the just generations I mean you're right there were Australia doesn't hand out knighthoods anymore but uh, back in the day <laughs> we did <laughs> a former and, prime um, minister tried that but didn't go down very well but you're right yeah, obviously yeah, you, I know some yeah. people are thinking yeah you know should we even be part of the Commonwealth and obviously there's a whole Republican movement that goes back and forth over the years. But yeah, there were three knighthoods in a row. So after John Fairfax, there was Sir James Redding Fairfax, Sir James Oswald Fairfax, and then my dad, Sir Warwick Fairfax. I mean, it's just it's extraordinary. You know, I, I never quite uh, made it that far. I didn't quite <laughs> do anything enough. And besides, Australia doesn't hand it out. So it's all, yeah. all good. But basically, you know, it wasn't just like being in some company making widgets. There was this sense that when you had a company, Australian listeners would know that had the age in Melbourne, City Morning Herald, Financial Review, TV, radio, magazines, that this was somehow you were serving the nation. I mean, it was mm-hmm. the sacred cause, if you will, that generations of family members have felt like that was what they were here for. So, you know, when I was growing up, my parents, uh, I mean, there were different branches of the family, but my parents certainly saw me as the next generation that one day, for a variety of reasons, I probably would have inherited, you know, the larger shareholding of different family members would be in a position to be a leading influence, whether that's chairman or I don't quite know what. So that was the expectations. And I almost jokingly say the mistake I made was I was somebody that always did well at school and worked hard. So the smarter play might have been don't do well at school and just do some goofy (laughs) stuff, drive fast cars and the expectations would have been lower, but I was the quote unquote good son. Yeah. Doesn't mean I was perfect, but the one that I took everything very seriously. You know, we had growing up parties with, I don't know, ambassadors, prime ministers, even folks from Hollywood. I mean, my mother, Lady Mary Fairfax, her ability to throw parties was such a level. People would come from Hollywood and say, you know, we're experienced sort of parties that we're not used to in Hollywood, you know, the, the quality. And the thought. Well, I, I arrived to Australia in, in 1995 and to Sydney in 1996. And I remember one of my friends driving me around the eastern suburbs in Double Bay, etc. And one of the first things they pointed out, that is where Lady Mary Fairfax lives. And she is famous <laughs> around here. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And so I know it's fascinating people, but, you know, not all kids of wealthy parents kind of work hard. Some are, you know, on drugs and it doesn't always work out. And I didn't want to be that person. You know, I took life seriously and my obligations to the family. So I got good grades in school. I went to Cranbrook School. It was literally over the road. I mean, literally, you know. The skipping school was not an option for you, was it's, it? <laughs> yeah, New, New South Head Road. I mean, it was just right there in Double Bay. And then I went to Oxford, to Balliol College, like my dad, grandfather, and older brother. Other relatives worked on Wall Street for three years. They went to, graduated from Harvard Business School where I got my MBA. I was so focused on, you know, not letting my father down and my parents and the family legacy. And yeah. so all of this hard work, it just fueled expectations. You know, some had gone to Oxford, none had gone to Harvard Business School. I'm not saying, therefore, I'm such a great person. It just really raised the bar of expectations right. of family and maybe even employees. I don't know, which I think I 
dashed once I came back. But um, yeah, it was this sense of, you know, really the final beat of this, this part is, you know, sometimes people ask me, did you ever feel like you had a choice? And the answer is no. And it wasn't so much my parents yelled at me about it. It was just more this unspoken obligation. You know, I love my father very much. And he never asked if I wanted to, well, you better make sure you do. It was just, it was just assumed like the royal family doesn't have this conversation with Prince William. Gee, you know, what are you thinking? You know, you, you really need to do this and buckle up and yeah, those conversations are non-existent. So if I hadn't gone to the family business, you know, it would have devastated my dad. I just couldn't have done it. It would have crushed him. So yeah. I don't think that's unique to your family. Of course, many family businesses have that, uh, very unspoken sense of duty and fathership and legacy. And the assumption is that the, the next generation will take it forward. A lot of the coaching I've done with family businesses, that is often part of the onset issues that arise. You know, the expectations are very clear, but never agreed to. And, uh, and therefore, you know, issues arise. I get a strong sense of what I've read about you and in listening to you on your podcast, the sense of duty is, is, was, was really important for you. And in a conversation you and I had recently, you talked about John Fairfax and his sense of duty to his employees and indeed to his church. How else has your family shaped you beyond sense of duty, beyond the sense of expectation? What is it shaping you before you took on the leadership role? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, there's a book that was written by another Fairfax in 1941, John Fitzgerald Fairfax, which is ironic because you think of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, but obviously in 1941, nobody really heard of JFK at that yeah, point. For whatever right. reason, that yeah. was his name. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we wrote this book and it's really a, a loving portrait of John Fairfax. And I read that a few times growing up and here was somebody that was a man of great faith. He was an elder at his church, a great uh, husband, father, his employees loved him. When he died, you know, uh, just the printers uh, and the paper, we just say, you know, what a kind and ploy he was. Not everybody founds a business by treating people well and by life being in balance in the sense of his, he didn't neglect his family. He founded all sorts of nonprofits on the side. It was just amazing. So when, you know, faith has always been a heritage in my family, became not quite so maybe evangelical as his was. And then when I was at Oxford, faith in Christ became uh, more important to me and, you know, became, uh, you know, a stronger faith at an evangelical Anglican church there. So that, in a sense, also made it worse. And my naivety and stupidity is like, gosh, John Fairfax was a man of great faith. And gosh, maybe somehow, not so much in terms of editorial or Jesus lives or anything stupid like that, but more in terms of how employees are treated. Mm-hmm. So that also just fueled the whole expectation and obligation at I mean, faith is not a bad thing at all, but in that sense, it made things worse in a sense because duty plus faith. And then in my naivety, it's like, well, surely God's plan must be for me to be there and carry on the family tradition and maybe make it stronger. And yeah, it just absolutely reinforced. It's very clear what my mission is. And a few holes in the logic, but oh my gosh, duty, faith, I mean, mission, it was just... It was abundantly clear what I should do, whether that's what I wanted to do was a completely irrelevant question. So let's jump to 1987. Uh, your, your father passed, you were in Harvard, and you, you led a, a, a buyout, effectively a buyout of, of taking the publicly traded company back into privatization. What were you hoping to achieve by doing that? What was your intention of doing that? 
Yeah, I sometimes ask myself, what was I thinking? And it's hard for me to actually fathom that at the time. I've obviously written a book that's going to come out later this year. I'm talking about that in detail. But basically, with my father dying in early 87, he was 86 at the time. I was from my dad's third marriage, so hence the big age gap. It's complicated, but my dad was thrown out as chairman in 1976 by other family members. They might have had their reasons. Maybe they were valid, but as a 15-year-old kid... In 76, I didn't see it that way. I just felt like, how could they do this to my dad? Doesn't really matter who was right and wrong, but subconsciously that affected me, I mean, deeply. So ever since then, there was a sense from my parents that maybe the company wasn't being run as as well as it could be. And there were some incidents, which I bore listeners with, with, you know, and you could make a case for that. Maybe there was, I felt like maybe a bit too much sensationalism in the newspaper columns. So, and then once my dad died, uh, the company was 50% held by family, 50% was traded on the stock exchange. So the stock price of the company in the first few months of 87 started rocketing up. So that meant the market felt the company was in play, as they say. Mm-hmm. I suppose the market's wisdom for the conclusion was, given that my father had died, even with family earning 50%, some of the more uh, minor family members in terms of side of the shareholding might have said, look, you know, so Eric's dead, you know, maybe you want to get out. And so if a takeover bid had been launched, all you would have needed is a few over 50 and then everybody else probably would have sold. Yeah. So I don't think the market is, is necessarily always wrong. And I think in this case, there was a valid reason. So a combination of protect it from takeover, bring the company more in line, uh, the ideals that are found and maybe make the, you know, have the company be more well managed. Whether this is a fair conclusion one could debate all that. Sure. But in my youth, naivety and idealism, that's what I thought. And, you know, maybe there was some encouraging that viewpoint. And so off I went like some uh, naive, uh, misguided crusader, I suppose, would be the way you would summarize that, perhaps. I looked up the, some of the records and, and I can't remember his journals, but someone in Sydney on Herald wrote afterwards that it was an ill-advised, but essentially a noble attempt, what you were endeavoring to do. You debt funded to the, to the tune of multi-billions of dollars to, to, to buy it out. And then hard luck hit in the sense of uh, the country and recession, et cetera. So what, what was the impact at the time in terms of why the intention you had didn't quite work? Yeah, I mean, basically, once I launched it, some other family members sold out the major ones. They didn't want to be trapped in a private company controlled by a then 26-year-old, which is completely understandable, I have to say. Yeah. You know, don't blame them at all for that uh, conclusion. Uh, and that and the, and the October 87 stock market crash meant that our asset sale program was hurt by that. So by the end of 87, we had an unsustainable level of debt. So yes, I brought in new management that in the first year increased operating profits by 80%. Wow. So you could say objectively, yeah, very successful. maybe my conclusion that the company wasn't as well managed as it could be maybe there was some merit to that argument. The problem was the debt was so high, mm-hmm. it didn't matter what management did. It was just, you know, it was just unsustainable. So then in 1990, Australia got in a pretty significant recession. Newspaper revenues, which are really driven by classifieds, at least back then, yeah. anyway, they were. They watched this before online. Yeah. Ads, you know, <laughs> cars, uh, employment, it was all, you know, in the City Morning Herald. Well, the revenues were decimated by the recession. When you've got so much debt, you have no room to maneuver. And so then we were forced to declare bankruptcy in December 1990. So really, you know, we were almost doomed before we started. Once I launched that takeover, 
in reality, it would have needed everything to go right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't need like four races in poker. I mean, you would have need you would have almost needed perfection, which can happen. But perfection is typically not a good business strategy yep. for getting all my ideals, noble or otherwise. So once that takeover was started, the chances of success were minimal at best. Of course, I didn't realize that at the time, didn't yep. think about it objectively. Yeah, it was always going to be a, a, a close run thing. Very tough to make it work. I suspect I'm not the first person to ask you this next question. And I'm sure you've ruminated about this for a long time. But with the benefit of hindsight now, what might you have done differently in order to achieve your aims? Or indeed, what would you have done differently, full stop? Well, I think probably the first thing is uh, not have done the takeover. <laughs> I thought to might say that. <laughs> you know, it's easy when you're in this bubble. We live in a very divided world politically and every other way. And everybody listens to their own tribe, their own people, and your own echo chamber that reinforces it. So my parents, they had their own perspective, especially after my dad being thrown out of up to 76, it's clear why they would have a, a different viewpoint than the current management of the family members. I mean, why wouldn't they? Of course you would, given what happened. It's like you lose an election. You know, you're going to think the new party, oh, I'm sure they're, they're a wonderful people. You're going to disagree with everything they do just because. Yeah. Or if you've been thrown out as party leader, you're just going to disagree with the new guy or the new person just because. So it's natural. So, you know, if I'd been smarter and wiser, and, you know, it's sometimes hard for me to understand myself, I wasn't so dumb. I have, have an Oxford and Harvard MBA. Mm-hmm. I start like I'm an idiot in mm-hmm. theory. Yeah. But when your emotions get involved, you can make poor decisions. So if I'd come back and listen to management, listen to other family members, hey, what's your perspective about some recent management decisions that were being made that seemed to be questionable? You know, just work my way in, maybe influenced, risen up the ladder, uh, you know, maybe earn my right to be heard, if you will. That would have been the smarter play. Now, whether long-term, I would have enjoyed being in the goldfish bowl. And, you know, there'd been decades of tensions within my family just for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Not all other people's fault. My father made some decisions objectively that probably didn't help family relations way back when. You, know, you had these frictions. Yeah, it would have been tough. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, making the takeover, were, I mean, once that was made, it's hard to think of a scenario in which it would have gone well. Right. So that the smarter to play was not do the takeover. And even if after a few years I felt like I was so frustrated, then I should have left, which would have been really, really difficult for me as a duty faith person to ever yeah. leave. Yeah. So, yeah, if you, if you ask, could you ever see yourself having left voluntarily? The answer objectively is I can't see it. I don't think I could have done it. There's just no way. Yeah, I, I can so imagine that because your your sense of duty to not not just to your parents but to your whole family heritage was and is is so strong that was driving a, a reason. Yeah, so I would have been stuck at it. Maybe I would have been happy, or maybe I would have had decades of not about misery, but just feeling like I've got to be really careful what I say and how I do things. And I don't know. It's hard to fathom that could have been this idyllic. I mean, I would have been well off, I guess. I'm, I'm certainly very fine now, but I would have been a lot more than fine yeah, <laughs> back right. then. You know, I might have been at sort of Packer or Murdoch level yeah. or maybe yeah. not quite at that level, but, yeah. you know, I don't know, very wealthy, put it that way, but I don't know about happy. 
Yeah, well, indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, as as you know, and many people know, the accumulation of wealth does not equate to happiness. They're, they are different things, very, very different things. Indeed. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. I wonder if, if I could spend a bit of time about the, the, you know, the bottom of that crucible moment. Mm-hmm. A lot of work that I do uh, is helping executives to perform as best they can, but sometimes it's about making sense of events that they haven't done well, so therefore they can learn. And you know, trauma is often described as the most stressful events in your life. And in the corporate world, reputational trauma is, is I think, the, the, you know, the mm-hmm. most impactful of that. Most execs will always make a mistake. The more senior you get, the bigger the ripple effect of, of that mistake. But few people do that in a very public manner. So uh, I'm I'm keen to hear from you in terms of you were in that moment. Uh, the you know the business was put into receivership. You were 30. It was very publicly, I would imagine, humiliating. But I don't know that. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you in that moment, with with the benefit of hindsight now? Yeah, I mean, it was excruciatingly painful. It wasn't so much the loss of money on paper that I could have had, because for whatever reason, money has never been a motivator for me. It's just, it's not like I like poverty. I mean, I like to be comfortable. I don't, I'm not against, you know, going to a nice hotel or whatever, but you know, it's not a motivator for me. It was more the fact that I'd let my dad down, my parents down. I'd let John Fairfax down, a person of faith that was important to me. And in some weird and poor theological construct, I felt like I'd let God down. I felt in my naivety and stupidity, God had a plan to maybe resurrect the company, at least in terms of how other people were treated so badly. But it's just, this was my thought, oh, I'm a person of faith. He's a person of faith. Somehow, maybe, you know, that was God's plan for me to be a leading figure there. And so feeling like I'd broken or destroyed God's plan. And yes, you know, while people didn't think I, you know, was a murderer, liar, cheats, steal or anything like that. It was certainly this sense of, you know, young, naive, hot-headed kid could have had it all and blew it. So yes, my self-respect was low, understandably. I don't criticize the media, whatever, for not, for, you know, blaming me for what happened. And it was more complicated than it was all my fault, but largely my fault. So yes, there was a sense of humiliation, but it was just a sense of what do I do now? I've just destroyed my birthright. I've caused friction within the family. Certainly didn't help. While the company went on, there'd been books written since, as you probably know, two or three saying if, if the family had maintained control, somehow magically, John Favix Limited would be thriving, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I think it's a little simplistic because, you know, everybody missed the whole internet advertising, yeah. you know, Washington Post everywhere. And so would we have done any better? It's hard to see that we would have succeeded where everybody else failed, but whatever. It's another cross, I suppose. People said, not only am I responsible for what happened, you're responsible for the you know, last 20, 25 years. <laughs> yes, I think it's really? slightly unfair. <laughs> the irony is you know, that the business went, went, went back on the market, of, I think it was five years later, and it was delisted almost uh, 30 years later again uh, after yeah. merger Town Line. So you know, history repeats itself in, in, in many, many cycles. So I think it's unfair it to suggest you caused it the next 30 years there, Warwick. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, it was certainly, it was just difficult, just this decimation to my sense of self-respect, morale. 
it was extremely, uh, it, it was tough. I mean, I had Oxford Harvard business school reunions over the years and it was years before I would go to one. Cause I felt like, how can I hold my head up? I mean, yeah. I would just say you, what are you doing here? Most people don't care. Yeah. And most people aren't that malicious, yeah. but it's just, I, I, I felt like I couldn't go in the door cause I just felt I'd be too humiliated. People would laugh or like you, I mean, please go away. Right. It's that, that's the sense you have when you fail on an epic scale. You almost want to hide under the covers and just, you just don't almost don't want to see people at its extreme. Certainly not your peers or that kind of thing. You yeah. just feel like I'm not worthy. And it sounds funny, but anybody who's gone through massive failure, they, they feel like that, you know? It is extraordinarily common in my line of work and in your line of work to hear that. Not necessarily, as, as you said, on such a public scale, which is why I asked you to talk about your public scale to begin with, because it's, it's just the scene. But the, the process of recognizing I have failed and the temporal distance between the moment of failure to allow yourself to start making sense of it, that is the most important thing, I think, is to how do you take time just to sit and then start making sense of it. So with that in mind, and your, your, your podcast Beyond the Crucible goes into this almost every episode with individual <laughs> interviews, which is great resource for anyone who's interested in overcoming failures of different types. But what was your process or who supported you to take time to step away from the event and to start making sense of it and then to reconstruct that narrative for yourself that I'm not an epic failure, which is different to an epic failure occurred? That's a very insightful question. Anybody that knows who's gone through this, it was not easy. It took years, a good part of the 90s. And part of it really was through my faith. I came to see that something that is probably not that complex, but seemed to be a bit of a revelation to me that God loves us unconditionally. You know, whether you believe, whatever denomination, however you see the spiritual world, from my perspective, I believe that, you know, God doesn't need what we do. He loves us because of who we are as a human. As human beings, we have inherent worth and value, not because of what we do, but because of who we are as people. And so I came to realize, and also, you know, if God wanted it to happen, despite my stupidity and naivety, it would have happened. So clearly, maybe there was another plan. I guess, I wouldn't say it's fatalistic, but it's more just realizing sometimes there's a plan you know, these are the complex subjects. I believe we have free will, but yet somehow God knows what's going to happen. How do those two things reconcile? Theologians have been debating that for centuries or beyond. And yeah, I don't pretend to understand it other than theologians would say both are true. So who knows? So part of it was my faith. The other was my family, my wife's American who actually met in Australia. So she got to experience the Australian side and the whole, you know, drama. But you know, she has also loved me unconditionally. And, you know, we were not nearly as wealthy. We weren't on the streets. We were okay. But she never once said, oh, Warwick, you idiot. I mean, never once. I mean, she didn't care about the money and we were fine. And we, you know, started having kids in the nineties and that was therapeutic because, you know, my kids didn't know anything about, you know, the media mogul dad. They just knew me as the one who kick a soccer ball or threw a ball or, you know, whatever, you know, you do with young kids. So that helped that unconditional love, both spiritually as well as my family. And then I began to do things and not screw it up. And that right. was helpful. Yeah. You know, I, and I yeah. started small because try getting a job with a resume that says ex media mogul. Now I work hard. I like to feel like I'm reasonably humble, but that's like unemployable. No one would be you employ something, you know, that yeah. kind of person. 
So eventually I got a um, part-time job that turned to permanent at an aviation services company in Maryland doing financial and business analysis. So this was kind of like a 96. This is pretty much pre-internet or it wasn't so robust that people could easily Google you back then. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, why bother? Yeah. And so they didn't know. Yeah. And I didn't tell them. So, you know, gradually it's like, gosh, you know, I'm analytical, I'm responsible and I got good performance reviews. And so that it was really drop by drop, you know, from there, I had a mid-career assessment in 2003 from an executive coach. And she said, you've got a great profile for executive coaching. So of course mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Had to research that. I love asking questions. I'm curious. And from there, you know, each was a rung up the ladder mm-hmm. of building back my self-esteem. Mm-hmm. From there, I ended up being on my kids' school board and we go to a non-denominational church. I got on the elder board there. And I came to realize being an advisor where I'm not in charge, but I'm with a group of people offering advice and speaking my truth, but holding it lightly in that if everybody else thinks something different, I was fine with it. You know, I got respect both in my job, then as a coach, then being on these boards. And when I was coaching, people would say, Warwick, that's a great point. And I'm like, but I'm just asking questions. How could I be making a point? And I came to realize I had a leadership voice. So, you know, each of these were kind of rungs along the ladder to to rebuilding my self-respect and finding out who I was and what my calling or purpose was. It's not as easy as just going to a mountaintop and saying, okay, here we go, Lord, I want the whole roadmap. The next 20 years, I'm ready. (laughs) It's like, it. I don't know, it doesn't work like that, but it was a slow process. But each one felt like a drop of grace, drop of water from an oasis. It's like, aha, rung by rung by rung, my self-respect was rebuilt. Brick by brick, to use another analogy. It was a long process, but in hindsight, it's pretty clear what happened and why. I love what you've outlined there. And maybe if we could double down a few things, because as you've been talking, I've been remembering some of our former guests over the last year or so and their their answers to similar questions, which is remarkably similar. If I could break it down, uh, Richard Neal, a for, uh, former guest who's a, a group CEO of a large construction firm in, in the UK, talked about his public firing uh, in a, in a, as a CEO and coming home. And the first thing his wife says, we'll be okay. And for him, that was the moment of in the eyes of the people who matter most, i.e. my family, I'm okay. And, and they, they, they sorted that out and he went on and did to, to lead an MBO as it happened, um, which later. Someone else I remember interviewing uh, for this podcast talked about confidence comes from doing things successfully, not from being supported. And what you said is you took small steps and each step you successfully did build up your confidence again. Uh, so it wasn't rushing back to become a, you know, a chair of, of, a, of a multimedia, multinational organization. It was actually, let me take a small step. Let's start there and then second step and third step, which is, is my experience is, is the temporal distance allows you to overcome the trauma, but it's actually taking the steps afterwards is where you rebuild that confidence. And indeed, you start getting perspectives that you couldn't have had before, which it sounds like is what you've been doing. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is, you know, we talk about learning the lessons of your crucible. I had to learn some lessons. You can't just, when you fail, I mean, it's one thing if if it's a setback, like a physical injury, that's not your fault. I mean, the lessons are obviously are quite different. It's trying to live with what's a new normal. That's a whole different, incredibly painful set of lessons. But when it's failure, I had to learn like, yeah, I made some mistakes, which we've talked about, the naive assumptions and, you know, all that. But I also had to learn that 
you know, I'm not Rupert Murdoch, Kerry Pack, or James Pack. I mean, you pick your media mogul, successful people, but you know, that's not me. I'm not a, you know, take no prisoners executive, make a hundred decisions before breakfast. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a bit like my dad. My dad would have been a better philosophy professor. Right. That was, he was a good writer, but he would have been, he was very philosophical and loved having deep conversations about religion, philosophy, you name it. So there's a bit of that in me that I'm more of a reflective advisor. That's really more who I am. So I was just a round peg in a square hole. So that was a big lesson that, you know, I was taking on a job that I was not designed for. Yeah. And so what I try to do now is different. I try to do the things. It sounds a bit arrogant, but somebody once said, don't do the things you're really good at, do the things you're great at. Well, I like asking questions. So people will say to me, Warwick, you ask the greatest questions. Well, okay, great. But there's a lot of things I'm terrible at. Yep. Well, you're going to get a lot of respect if you do the things you're good, if not great at. I mean, that sounds blindingly simple, but quit trying to be, you know, if you're an artist and maybe you don't have an athletic bone in your body, quit trying to beat yourself up if you're terrible athletically. Enjoy the fact that you love art and paint or sculpt or, or whatever that is. You know, that sounds obvious, but sometimes we most want to do what we're worst at, which is so stupid, but <laughs> a lot of us do that. It sounds bloody simple in hindsight or on the, the, the other side of the realization. But when, you, when you're stuck in, in that moment of why am I not effective in this role or I don't seem to be succeeding in this organization, whereas my last one, I was the hero. What's going on here? It's, it's suddenly very cloudy and dark and, and, and scary for, for that person. So I, I, I love that you're outlining stop, pause, reflect, observe, notice, and maybe, maybe move to what's obvious. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not obvious in the time. Absolutely. And part of, yes, you want to find things you're good at, but, you know, one of the things I find with the folks we've interviewed in our podcast, Beyond the Crucible, is everybody, every one of these folks, and we've interviewed people of all genders, races, backgrounds, nationalities, from a Navy SEAL who was paralyzed in a training accident to victims of abuse to people who failed in business, you name it, the Crucible, we've chatted to them. They all have something of this and similar, is they all bounced back, yes, to do things they're good at, but they all felt like what they're doing matters. You know, the Navy SEAL ended up heading up a clinic for vets in San Diego in California with some of the latest uh, machines that are beyond what most clinics have. You know, they all found a calling typically coming out of the ashes of their crucible. So it's good to do things you know, you're good at, but the sense of what do I feel is my purpose in life? You know, we call it life of significance, life on purpose, dedicated to serving others. What do I, and it could be in a big corporation. It could be a nonprofit. It could be being a painter. It could be all sorts of things, but why am I here on this earth? What do I feel called to? What do I feel like mm-hmm. that matters? You know, maybe it's helping, you know, the world be more sustainable. There's all sorts of things, but when you do something that you feel like you're good at and that you love and it connects to your deepest innermost beliefs and values that you're passionate about, then that's a path that leads to joy and fulfillment. And who doesn't want joy and fulfillment? So it again, that sounds simple, but some people, most folks don't think and reflect. Do I feel cold to this? That's not a, a wrong or somehow weird new age concept. You know, I think more and more, especially young people, more and more, they want to feel like what they do matters. So this sense of calling is something that I feel passionate about too. And everybody that I know that's come back from crystal experiences, they all have a sense of calling with that. If I think of your own story, you know, you've moved from 
a place of a sense of duty to serve the family expectations indeed, uh, or indeed what the family served mm-hmm. more towards actually what, what, what is my significance and how do I serve that or those people? Yes. In your book, and, uh, which comes out in, in October later on this year, you talk about a refining process where you help leaders to refine that for themselves. And a life of significance is one part. What, what are the other parts or the, the other questions you help them to figure out so they can move through these moments? Some of what we've been talking about, but basically it's, you've got to learn the lessons of your crucible, come to terms with them. In my case, you know, the epic failure wasn't designed for this. And that really gets into the next stage, which is a lot of things that are true do sound obvious, I have to confess, but know how you're wired. Are you, you know, good at math? Are you artistic? What's your basic wiring? And from my faith perspective, I believe that God doesn't make mistakes. If he wires you a certain way, don't ignore the blueprints. Okay. You may not, you may like it or not like it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you wanted to be a champion football player and, you know, you don't have a coordinated bone in your body. Okay. I mean, I'm not terrible athletically. I wouldn't say I'm great, but you know, don't, don't kind of uh, rail against that, accept how you're wide. And, and that's the next step. And then, you know, get in touch with your fundamental beliefs and values. It could be uh, religion, theological, it could be philosophical, spiritual. You know, not everybody's religious today. I think the vast majority of people, certainly young people are spiritual. They believe in some higher force, some universal construct that is common with the vast majority will get in touch with your fundamental beliefs and values and then think about, okay, what's something I can do that I'm really good at and is in line with my fundamental beliefs and values to make that vision become reality. That's really the last step is you want a team of what I call fellow travelers Mm -hmm. who are equally passionate about your vision. You don't want a team that could care less, you know, obligation doesn't really motivate very much, but if they feel like, you know what, Warwick, Pod, John, Mary, whoever you are, I'm in it with you. Sign me up. I believe this vision, whether it's, you know, uh, environmental sustainability or whether it's, you know, you've got a company that you feel like does more than just make a profit that has a mission to serve the community, to serve its customers, to serve its employees. It's like, sign me up. I believe in this because nobody has all of the gifts. Maybe you're reflective, but not a manager. Or, you know, maybe... You know, you can't be, you can't be a superb accountant, operations manager, sales person, marketing person, strategist. Nobody has all those gifts. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's an interesting phrase you use the, 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 the fellow travelers. You know, if you think about a corporate setting, fellow travelers could well be the, the organization culture that I'm, that I'm part of. They're, they're my fellow travelers. Yeah. When I think about my own mistakes and my own crucible moments, of which I've had far too many work, but there you go. (laughs) Invariably, invariably, I've been with the wrong set of travelers. That doesn't mean that they were wrong. They were just, I was with the wrong set for me. And uh, it took me quite a while to understand. I'm I'm trying really, really hard to work with this group of people. What's wrong about them? There's nothing wrong about them. I was with the wrong group. That's so true. It's funny you say that because I have had that moment being with the wrong group. So without getting into all the details, I did listen to advisors that were probably not steering me in the right direction, maybe telling me what I wanted to hear. And then there was a pivotal moment where I did the classic thing you should never do. I got sound advice from a well-respected merchant bank in early 87. And they said, Warwick, this is not a good idea to take up it analytically, financially. I mean, forget all my other motivations, spiritually or family dynamics, just from a sheer business 
perspective, it's too risky, doesn't make sense. I would wait. And if and when there's a takeover by somebody else, then maybe you can respond, gather the family. But I received very good and sound advice and I ignored it, ended up listening to advisors that weren't so good. So I would, that's the worst case scenario, right? You ignore the good advice and listen to the bad advice. Yeah. Yeah. So now, obviously, I have a great team of Christian leadership. I want to surround myself with people who believe in the vision, but will also shoot with me straight. And they'll tell me what I don't want to hear. Great leaders are not afraid of people saying, you know, pod, Warwick, you know, I mean, this is idiotic what you're thinking. Yeah. Really, I mean, it's just yeah. stupid. Yeah. And let me tell you why. Yeah. Well, they may not be right, but you should thank them for giving you advice you don't want to hear. Yeah. Not that many leaders, they want want that. They want yes men, yes women. So yeah, the whole advisor thing, oh my gosh, I, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? Haven't we all? The, the ability to, to broaden your perspective and hear diverse points of view, even if they're uncomfortable, that, that, that is the ongoing leadership gift. And here's the, the last bit on that is, you know, because I've had such a uh, crucible experience with advisors when I'm on these two boards that I've been on, you know, I'm not a bomb thrower. I'm a diplomatic person. But when I'm on those boards, I don't throw bombs. But I say, look, I hear what you're saying. I don't think this is wise. And here's why. I, I mean, I'm good friends with the leaders of both organizations, but I don't care. My job is to share my truth. Now, whether everybody agrees is not relevant. I hold it wildly. I'm not yelling and screaming, but I, I don't have this country club mentality like a lot of boards. Mm-hmm. How many things go wrong, like in the financial meltdown in the US in 2008? And these boards are making, like banks are making cataclysmically stupid decisions. These companies of, you know, lending to people they shouldn't be lending where they had no ability to repay. And as long as the housing prices go up, you're fine, but the housing prices go down it's suicide. And then just sitting there, not asking tough questions, right? Well, after what I went through, you know, it is one thing I take very seriously. I do it nicely, but I ask tough questions. Because if you're on a board, that is your job. Yeah, You're there to serve the shareholders, the employees. And if you get fired because you're asking uncomfortable questions, oh, well, but you know, it's not a country club. And too many, a whole nother sermon, if you but too many boards it's like a, a group of people that don't ask enough tough questions. Invariably, when you read about companies that are in trouble, how many times do you read about boards that really aren't, aren't doing what they needed to do until it was too late? One of my early mentors, uh, Peter Hawkins, who's a famous coach on systemic team leadership out of the UK, said to me a long, long time ago, he said, uh, if you want to be really, really good in this space, he said, get really, really good at telling the truth. What that means is you'll be, you'll be fired at least once a year. So th- th- that's, that's how you know you're, you're getting better. Absolutely. In my early days of arrogance, I was fired far more often, but that's, that's, a, that's a different story. But he's absolutely right. He's, he's, you know, and, he's, and that makes you more valuable to the board you're on and to your, the clients if you're a coach or consultant. Good clients, they want folks like you that will not just ask good questions, but tell them your truth. You know, that's what they want. That's what they should want. Warwick, thank you so much for sharing a lot of your wisdom and experiences. As I said up front, you, you, you went through an extraordinary public crucible and have come out the other end a lot wiser and a lot, and a lot more educated. And you're sharing that to a wide audience via your own podcast and via your upcoming book. I want to ask two last questions of you. The first one I've been asking people for 20 years, so it's not unique to you, but I'm interested in your answer. What is your favorite band and your, or your favorite song? Well, it's funny, you know, uh, I grew up in the 70s. And so 
like a lot of Australians at the time, definitely liked ABBA. But believe it or not, ABBA was more popular in Australia than any other country in the world other than Sweden. <laughs> Still it was big in the 70s. <laughs> but if I had to pick one song, I'm also thinking of Australian. Australians would know that much beloved uh, group, The Seekers. Mm-hmm. There's one song they have, I Am Australian, that they wrote later in life, maybe 90s or something. Mm-hmm. And that is one of, in my opinion, one of the iconic Australian songs to talk about all these folks from many lands that have come to Australia and have become one, you know, there's this iconic line that says, I am, you are Australian. So that's definitely one of my favorites, that particular song. Fantastic. We'll, we'll include that in, in our notes. And last question for you, which I suspect you've already answered in, in many different ways <laughs> since we started and you're answering for the last 30 years. But um, with the benefit of hindsight, what would you now tell the 30-year-old version of yourself? Well, certainly the 26-year-old self, I would say, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Just stop. Do it. Don't even think about it. But the sad thing is I've often reflected is if I had a time machine and went back, I don't think I could have convinced myself. Yeah. I don't think there's anything I could have said because duty, loyalty, I've got to do something. Look at these stupid decisions management are making. So I thought I just, you know, um, but don't do it. But also, what is it? I would have asked myself some questions, which I don't think would have worked, but you know, who knows? Like, are you doing this for you or for your family? What do you feel like your calling is? Is it your calling or is it John Fairfax's calling? I was a person of faith back then. You know, you're designed a certain way. Do you think God makes mistakes when he designed you a certain way? Given your design, what would that look like? You know, maybe your calling is outside of John Fairfax Limited. Just imagine for a moment, if you weren't there, what would that be? I mean, there's all sorts of questions I think I would ask to try to get me to think that it's not all about serving my duty and loyalty, but I would have tried to listen. I'm just really skeptical as to whether that would have worked. So, you know, sometimes you got to go through, have a few scrapes and bruises to learn, you know, with kids, you don't want your kids to get in trouble or, but somehow the only way you learn is by making mistakes and I don't know. You want to avoid, especially your kids having massive mistakes and hopefully ours won't, but I don't know. I'm skeptical as to anything I could have said that would have really derailed my false crusader mentality, you know, naive crusader mentality. It was, would have been very difficult to derail given how it was wide and how I grew up. Well, a wise man once said, the mistake is not what you did. The mistake is not learning from what you did. So it sounds like you've, you've clearly learned from that and you're helping a lot of other people to do so. Warren Fairfax, it's been a pleasure to have you on our podcast this morning. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, partner. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoyed that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation. Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider. And I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.